Dr. Christos Patelis, thank you very much indeed for talking to us today in the Judge Business School White Paper podcast. I know that you argue in your paper that smaller developing countries face problems in a global economy. Why is this? The main reason is because globalization is uh, allowing firms that have already created competitive advantages, usually firms that they are in developed countries, uh, to uh, build on these competitive advantages and make it uh, more difficult for catching up uh, countries and firms from countries that they are trying to catch up to uh, emulate this and reach this situation. Is there anything that Western governments and trade organizations can do to help the smaller economies? Okay, I I very much uh, welcome this question because uh, my starting point would be that uh, the main issue is not really to help. The main issue is to stop being a problem because uh, the major developed countries uh, are uh, using sometimes uh, protectionist policies despite the fact that they claim they are usually claim to be claiming to be anti-protectionist which make the situation worse it's very ironic in one sense that a uh, recent uh, discussion in the, the US uh, is in line with uh, even more uh, protectionist policies which if anything will make it more difficult for uh, smaller developing countries to catch up and for instance the US is trying to restrict labor movements isn't it and, and trade elsewhere Is that going to penalise in the current economic climate and recession, smaller countries catching up? No, you're absolutely right. One way that uh, through which countries can catch up is actually through uh, emigration, for example. One other uh, way through which uh, countries were um, uh, benefiting in recent years is uh, through, for example, outsourcing, offshoring, and uh, the movement, the relocation of activities of multinational corporations from the developed countries to the developing world, uh, in recent years that included even a tendency for research and development and uh, innovation-related activities to be relocated. That was a very good uh, thing to happen. And of course all of this fear and uh, protectionist uh, tendencies now make this even worse. So what can be done and catch up you argue, is good for the global economy as well, you know, that you need a balance between the smaller developing economies and the larger ones? Well, the reason I'm saying that catching up is well for the economy is that the more developed the world is, the more we all benefit. For example, if you think about, take your case, you should be very happy that you have a Sony television. Uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago, people might be very worried because of the emerging uh, power which they could see economic power of Japan. We, since we have realized that we all benefited out of the catching up of Japan and other East Asian economies, there are similar fears with China. I think that it's good. It's a good thing for catching up and development that creates new markets, uh, new consumers, uh, and this is good for everybody. Now I know you've been advising the EU on these catch-up policies for the smaller economies. What countries have you been working with, and what have you found out? Mm. Uh, I've been working with very many countries, uh, both uh, Western countries, uh, Western European, I mean in the context of uh, a European Union uh, project uh, called NetWin, uh, Networking for Innovation. That involved diagnosing clusters and I was the international expert of the European Commission on cluster diagnosis and developed uh, their methodology for diagnosing clusters. And we've been to places like France, Ireland, the UK, Greece, Portugal, uh, trying to, diagn- to diagnose some uh, 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 
some clusters and see how you do this process of diagnosing and then how do you move to the process of upgrading by uh, the cluster by identifying either missing linkages or what policy interventions can make this cluster more successful. So, for instance, you might get a, a cluster of countries or developing emerging economies who are good at tourism, for instance, or uh, an established one like Switzerland that's good at financial uh, products. Uh, the, uh, what you say it's very interesting because uh, at the moment the concept of clusters is used at the level of the firm, not the level of the country, but uh, there is not so much discussion about clusters of uh, countries, although there is debate in the economics literature about clubs, country clubs and convergence clubs and things like this. But let, coming back to my own focus, my own focus is the identification, the diagnosing of firm-level clusters, that is, firms, companies, that they are... Um, uh, concentrated in a particular region, and uh, this region is also and uh, is also characterized by the existence of universities. Take Cambridge, for example, uh, concentration of high-tech firms related and supporting industries. A university, a, a, a consumer and business association, and this creates a process of what we call increasing returns. That is a situation where you build on strength and you have uh, you create competitive advantages, so to speak. So why c can small, in some circumstances, be good? Why isn't bigger better? Okay, that is also a very good point. Theoretically, the the idea is that bigger is better because if you are bigger, you can have specialization and division of labor benefits and all of these uh, things that make uh, bigger and more autarkic uh, countries in theoretically better. In practice, however, we are observing that the evidence does not necessarily show that bigger countries are, ne uh, more, uh, are necessarily richer. And part of the explanation might be that in the context of what I've been saying now, it is easier in a country, to, in a smaller country, to, do a, to, uh, to, to diagnose the potential competitive advantages and build of them, on them uh, through... Uh, government policy, for example, in collaboration with, of course, the, the private sector. For example, the, I have done this in Greece, uh, because Greece is a relatively small country, 10 million people, it was able to actually have a, uh, a policy that identified most of the potential clusters that could be identified, let's say, bottom up, bottom uh, uh, top down from existing information, but then we initiated a process whereby in collaboration with the private sector and information received from the private sector, we were able to, to also see what was potential and nascent, but not really present, because the real information is in the private sector, the people on the ground. And then we asked them to apply for funding and propose policies as to how can they, what do they need in order to upgrade that particular cluster. And I can tell you a very interesting story, for example, from my hometown. I was brought up in a hometown where it is, all my life I was seeing marble around, and I thought that marble exists everywhere. I realized subsequently that this is not the case, and my hometown in northern Greece, Kavala, is uh, almost the epicenter of a potential a marble uh, cluster. So what we have done is we 
request that the firms, we ask the firms to get together and put in an application to the government asking what do they need so that they upgrade the links and they upgrade the cluster. And for example, two very interesting proposals, fascinating proposals, which subsequently were uh, funded to be implemented, was that they ask for funding to uh, buy a ferry that could transport uh, marble from an island opposite my hometown back to the mainland. No, part, no firm could do this by themselves, but as a cluster they could do this. And another thing, to buy in common a, a particular uh, machine that could go, a mobile machine that could go actually to its uh, quarry and collect all the rubbish, all the uh, what was left out of the process and transform it into a saleable product, killing two birds with one stone, one, reducing the problem of environmental pollution, and second, selling something which was otherwise useless. There are many interesting examples like this that uh, I found fascinating working on the ground. And that's a very neat solution. Is that why sometimes foreign investment policies fail, because they're top-down and they don't discern enough what's happening at the community or grassroots level with firms? Again, you are absolutely right. Uh, the reason that uh, foreign direct investment is not always necessarily good is when it is footloose and it's not linked to existing, uh, uh, existing advantages and capabilities in the country. Um, of course, this is not beneficial to uh, multinational firms too and does not always happen. It happens, for example, in cases they are only interested in cheap labor, and these are probably the worst cases. In cases where uh, there is an existing potential cluster in the country, like, for example, here in Cambridge, and a company like Microsoft relocates or uh, undertakes investment in this cluster, then both the company benefits and the cluster benefits, and therefore the local community benefits. And that is an example that developing countries ideally should pursue. If you then had to give advice to a smaller emerging economy about what to do, I believe that historical and geographical factors also play a part in the growth potential of those economies. Uh, you are absolutely right again. For example, uh, I, I can give you yet another example. Uh, Romania, for some reason, had uh, an existing advantage in uh, um, filmmaking from the past, which was uh, not particularly evident uh, in recent years following the 1989 transition to the market economy. Uh, somehow that was identified by uh, people and uh, also by entrepreneurs. And uh, in recent years, a new successful industry has been created there, a cluster has been created there, where a number of uh, big uh, Hollywood movies are being uh, uh, shot uh, there. Now, that would be very difficult to identify top-down, but this is something that if you really ask the local community, if you try to diagnose what it is there, and at the same time, if there are aspiring entrepreneurs who want to make money out of this and they are looking for these possibilities, you can actually br bring the two actors together and benefit both the country and the private sector. And you use the word, Christos, diagnose. So I presume that you can almost like a doctor, go into an emerging economy and, and look and discern what they might have a 
comparative advantage over in a global economy? Yeah, that is again a very good question in the sense that there is a traditional approach which is focusing on revealed advantages. This is basically where you have already shown that you have an advantage. This is not necessarily always a good thing because you may have a comparative advantage in something which is not, let's say, a, a sector uh, that uh, can... Uh, uh, characterized by what we call a high income elasticity of demand, that is, the richer people become, the more they buy from it. Um, so it, my focus on diagnosis is not so much on revealed comparative advantages, but on potential competitive advantages, which there are some ways to identify, but the best way is actually to ask the people on the ground. That is what makes it crucial to have collaboration between the private and the public sector, but a collaboration in a way that does not allow the public sector to be captured by the private sector, and that is a major potential problem. Because I know you argue as well that not all investment is good investment. Why is that? Generally speaking, I believe that investment is a good thing, but there are investments which can be more sustainable and uh, provide sustainable advantages to the local economy. And there are, event, uh, uh, there are investments which may be just uh, to exploit temporary uh, uh, advantages in, let's say, it's in terms of, let's say, cost of labor. This, by definition, cannot last. Because to the extent that this investment helps the country develop, then this development leads to increased wages, and then this leads to this these firms to want to relocate in another cheaper country. And there are a number of countries, for example, that they are very concerned by this. For example, I'm involved in a recent debate in, uh, concerning Vietnam. Vietnam, despite its uh, more, uh, impressive success over the past uh, 20 years, it, they are actually concerned now about how good inward investment has been for them and what could they do in order to improve the benefits they get from inward investment. And I'm involved also in some discussion with some people there on this issue. Do you have concerns about the World Trade Organization, their agreements? And if so, what could you do about those concerns? Again, that is a very good question in the sense that uh, uh, the World Trade Organization has advantages in that it allows a forum for developing countries to voice their concerns. And in a context where uh, developed countries uh, could use protectionist policies um, that could be against uh, catching up, it's good to have a forum. A problem is that a number of the agreements that they are being reached there uh, are depriving developing countries from uh, previous vehicles to catch up. For example, a recent agreement on intellectual property in effect makes you illegal as soon as you are found to be re-engineering and uh, using some generic drugs to create your own drugs. Now, this automatically is making it more difficult for developing countries to catch up before they had this. Japan had this. East Asia had this. Once you are part of, uh, in the early years, once you are part of WTO, this is becoming more difficult. If this is becoming more difficult, this raises the question what alternatives you may have. 
And this raises the fundamental question, do the Western countries, the developed countries, realize that it is good for them, for the developing countries to catch up? And if so, if they deprive you from one thing, do they give you something else? And what this something else could be? And so just finally, if you look to what is uh, becoming a world global recession, are you optimistic about the potential of the smaller economies to catch up? And what would your message be to the larger economies to encourage that catch-up? Because you seem to be saying it's good for all of us. Yeah, this is probably the, the, fu the fundamental question of the days. There was a belief that there was a potential decoupling, decoupling between the developing countries and the developed countries, and this crisis that was started in the developed world is not going to affect the developing world, which in some sense it will save us. Almost everybody realizes now that this is not the case, and in the context of globalization, something that has started mainly from the US and other developed countries is affecting developing countries even more badly. Uh, there was a recent problem and a very serious recent concern, for example, with Turkey, that they needed to have again IMF uh, uh, there were discussions about IMF support, despite the fact that the economy was doing extremely well, their policies were very sound, and there was no reason for them not to do well. And the problem in this case, unlike, let's say, in the past, was imported to them from other countries. I mean, there is no reason, let's say, in terms of fairness, quote-unquote, but I'm emphasizing efficiency-related arguments, not necessarily fairness one, but there is no reason that developing countries that have done their bit should be suffering from actions by developed countries. And globalization and the uh, unfettered, let's say, the regulation of financial markets and everything has actually contributed to developing countries paying the price for things done by developed countries. This is not good. So finally, America shouldn't be putting restrictions on labour movements, on trade in this recession, because it will come back and, and bite them, if you like, if they do. I actually think that uh, it's slightly even more complicated than this. What really concerns me is that America and other developed countries are focusing in attracting particular type of human capital, which is very good for them, and not allowing other type of unskilled labor to enter. And this is a double blow to developing countries in the sense that A, they lose the best, and B, and these best are the sort of people who may actually decide to stay in the U.S., and those people who are at the lower uh, skill uh, level and actually go in order to make some money, send back some remittances home, and then possibly eventually return, start a small business there and help the local economic development, they are not being allowed in. So it is quite hypocritical in many respects, and at the same time, uh, it is... Um, it makes it more difficult for developing countries. So if I was Barack Obama and you were sitting here with a message for me, what would you say if you wanted him to encourage global one-world growth? Well, what I would say is that for the US to stick to its professed uh, belief that uh, uh, tr free trade is good, but also recognize that there are conditions for free trade, and the condition is that you should allow... Uh, policies for developing countries to catch up, which look like being anti-trade today, 
but because they facilitate cutting up, like for example infant industries, like for example infant clusters, they eventually help uh, the growth and uh, employment and development back in the developed world as well. And this is what uh, needs to be done, to recognize that we need a level playing field, which we don't have at the moment. And that we live in one world. Where we all benefit if we allow other peoples to benefit as well. Dr. Christos Patelis, thank you very much indeed for talking to us today in the Judge Business School White Paper podcast. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure. Thank you.